Welcome to CCC's podcast series. I'm Christopher Keneally for Velocity of Content. It's Friday, April 7th, 2023. Today, as we do every week, we check in with Publishers Weekly on news from the world of books and publishing. Andrew Albanese, PW Senior Writer, joins me today from New York City. Welcome back to the program, Andrew. Hey there, Chris. In Texas, a federal judge has ruled that the Lano County Library Board had infringed the constitutional rights of citizens when it removed more than a dozen books, and they'll now be returned to library shelves. Yeah, it's a key legal victory for freedom to read advocates in a case that we've been following for a year now. Uh, federal Judge Robert Pittman late last week delivered a resounding win. Uh, and let's be honest, it's the kind of headline we all kind of needed at this moment after the last two years of you know legislation and book bans. Uh, and his 26-page decision, Pittman ruled that a lawsuit filed by a group of Lino County uh, residents over the actions of the library board and library leaders who were removing books uh, that some had deemed inappropriate, uh, that that lawsuit can continue, that the residents actually had standing to bring the suit because they were suffering a concrete constitutional injury. But more importantly, Pittman granted a preliminary injunction asked for by the plaintiffs, uh, this group of residents and library users in Linnell County, ordering the books to be uh, returned to the shelves immediately and barring the library from removing any more books from library shelves uh, while the suit was pending. Now, that's all great news, uh, and much of it is actually a confirmation of what we already know, and that is that the Constitution does absolutely protect library collections, although I would Caution Freedom to Read advocates not to celebrate too much over this victory. I agree that it stands as a clear-eyed and decisive victory for now, but I don't think it's going to do much on its own to change what's happening in Lano County or in communities across the nation that are facing similar book bans. Lawyers for the plaintiffs involved call the decision a ringing victory for democracy. So why are you not entirely persuaded this victory will ring very loudly? Well, absolutely, I agree that this is a, a victory. And I think when the case is all said and done, it's going to stand as a pretty complete victory. But as I see it, the case reinforces something that we already know to be true and that's been well decided by the courts. And that is that, you know, government officials can't just remove books from public library shelves because they don't like the content of, or the viewpoint of them. Uh, that is specifically content or viewpoint discrimination. And the courts have ruled on that in a number of cases. So that's important. I absolutely agree with that. But as to why this case might not, in terms of the, the legal ruling here, have as much impact as we might hope, is because the actions of the Lano County Board and some library leaders here were pretty blatant and obvious and frankly kind of stupid. And I'll, I'll talk about why that is a little bit. Among the issues in this case which was first filed on April 25th of last year, are allegations that Lano County officials were systematically taking you know, these books, including some award-winning books, off library shelves just because they didn't like them. They didn't like the content or the ideas contained within them. Uh, the board also terminated the library's overdrive account because county officials found that they didn't have enough control over the titles and they wanted more control over what would be made available to county residents. But also there's this. When the existing library board and Lano County librarians, uh, at least one Lano County librarian that we know of, kind of balked at these the removal of these books, and I think rightly so, given what Judge Pittman has now ruled, uh, one librarian was allegedly fired, 
And the library board was sort of disbanded and replaced with a board that would, you know, presumably be more compliant. And then the public was shut out of future library board meetings. Now, in their defense, county officials did not dispute that they removed the books in question because they didn't like them. Instead, they argued that the library officials had, you know, broad rights to weed its collection and remove titles. Uh, But the evidence in this case, frankly, is really clear that this was all not part of some weeding exercise. And by that, I mean a process where a library will go in and remove books that it it really don't circulate anymore, you know, to kind of make room on the shelves for for new acquisitions. But in his opinion and order, uh, Judge Pittman agreed that, you know, while libraries have broad discretion to choose which books it buys and to manage its collections, he took the plaintiff's point of view that library collections are constitutionally protected from unwarranted government intrusion. And the evidence in this case clearly showed Lano County officials were pulling these books because they believed them to be inappropriate or they didn't like the content. And that's content and viewpoint discrimination, plain and simple. Which books are we talking about here, Andrew? There's a number of, you know, there's a wide array of books here that were brought up. Some of them were removed and recently restored. Like they include, uh, Isabel Wilkerson's cast, The Origins of Our Discontents. Uh, they called themselves KKK, The Birth of an American Terrorist Group by Susan Campbell Bartoletti. Being Jazz, My Life as a Transgender Teen by Jazz Jennings. Uh, In the Night Kitchen by Maurice Sendak, which is one of my kids' favorite books when they were growing up. And uh, My Butt is So Noisy by Don McMillan, which, of course, won the Pulitzer Prize for nonfiction just a few years ago. I'm kidding, of course. (laughs) It's a kid's book, but it's a great kid's book. And it belongs on the shelves of our public libraries. But anyway, uh, the kind of books here point to what an easy case that really ended up being for Judge Pittman. You know, government officials can't just take books off the shelves for reasons that they don't, you know, that they just don't like them or they don't want butt books for kids or, you know, books about racism on the shelves. Now, this should have been obvious to the library board, should have been obvious to librarians. And while the, the county is now appealing Pittman's decision to the Fifth Circuit, uh, I believe it's a stone cold loser for them because the Fifth Circuit has actually ruled very clearly on this very issue. You know, but, but going back for a second to why I don't think this really is, you know, should be regarded as such a sweeping win for freedom to read advocates, it's because while the court found that the books were wrongly pulled for obvious reasons, the court didn't offer any relief on any of the other claims. And and here's the point that I want to make sure we keep front of mind. While library boards and, and library officials can't just take books off the shelves they don't like, they do have broad discretion over what books they buy in the first place. And the fact that we have a replacement new library board here in Lano County, and we have similar boards being empowered in communities across the nation, means that more and more titles, like the ones that were pulled from the shelves in Lano County, just won't be purchased in the first place, right? And this is all, of course, being exacerbated by all of these new laws in some of these communities that are banning uh, libraries and schools from buying or displaying inappropriate content. Um, in some case, in some cases, under the threat of prosecution which of course is understandably chilling librarians from even considering buying these new titles or certainly not making them available for lending for fear that they would put them in jeopardy or at least their jobs in jeopardy. So while I do see the ruling in the no counties as a big win, it it confirms uh, some very important constitutional uh, principles. It doesn't necessarily offer much relief from the insidious laws and the kind of book bans we're now seeing emerge in communities across the nation. Now, I also want to stress that in terms of the law, I do believe the fact that this case was even brought in the first place 
can be a very important factor here. Uh, and that was just highlighted in an editorial this week in the Washington Post by Alyssa Rosenberg that points out that the, the fact that this case was brought can be used as an example that, look, censorship and censorship attempts can be expensive, right? In other words, if you're going to ban books in your community, get ready to spend millions of dollars on lawyers and insurance costs and possibly damages when you lose. And I do think that is a powerful message to send to local library boards who may be considering uh, pulling books off shelves or banning books. You know, when these small but vocal minorities show up to your board meetings and shout about inappropriate content, calling librarians, groomers, and demanding action, uh, the way you can, you know, respond to that is to say, go through the proper channels, challenge the book in your school, but banning the books is not a, not a way we can go. A column in the latest PW issue has advice on how to defeat book bans by Claudia Johnson, author of Stifled Laughter, One Woman's Story About Fighting Censorship. Yeah, it's a nice piece from Johnson, who, of course, is a a veteran of the book banning wars, who notes that while the polls continue to show that Americans are opposed to book banning in large numbers, the book bans are still getting worse and worse than they've ever been. And so what's the most important thing uh, from her experience in fighting book bans? Showing up. And I couldn't agree more. Uh, The most important thing, Ross says, uh, when it comes to ending this wave of book bans is to make sure that you're showing up and speaking out in your community. And remember that even if you personally don't like, you know, the books that are being banned and you're not going to necessarily miss them from the shelves, it's not just books that are under attack. It's democracy itself. Last week, representatives of the Authors Guild lobbied lawmakers in Washington, D.C. over concerns about the rise of chatbots and the threat they may pose to the creative industries. Yeah, interesting, right? The Authors Guild uh, and, and some representatives traveled to Washington last week to meet with lawmakers to urge them to build, uh, and I'll quote them here, legal guardrails against these new generative artificial intelligence programs. Of course, chat B- GPT being one of uh, the most widely written about. Uh, but there are others, of course, we should note. And, you know, the, the Authors Guild wanted to lobby members of Congress on the potential harms posed by these programs to the literary and other creative industries. In the statement, Guild CEO Mary Rasenberger said that the future of journalism and literature and the arts depends on policies that adequately incentivize human creators to continue working. And she stressed that these new programs kind of pose an existential threat for the arts. Uh, Rasenberger said that Guild members were clear that they do support the development of this technology and the development of AI, but they just simply urged Congress to uh, begin exploring safeguards for human writers and artists. And look, our listeners like me, and I know like you, Chris, have surely played around with ChatGPT. And it can be pretty awesome and it can be pretty chilling. But you know, I just don't know how we wade into the ethics of these issues effectively just yet. Now, the Guild is lobbying for things like you know compensation and credit for authors and creators and other copyright owners whose works are used to train these AI machines. And I'm just not sure that that's going to work. Uh, again, it's I think it may be too early to know. But it's not too early to start exploring these issues. That much I agree with. A couple other things to note. The Copyright Office has made clear that only humans can qualify for copyright protection. And I think that's a good start because, look, if you're worried about publishers replacing human authors with AI, if those works don't enjoy copyright protection and anyone could just take them and sell them and profit from them, well, that's not going to be much incentive for publishers to pursue those works. 
Uh, I think the nightmare scenario, of course, is that you know, AI authored content starts to circulate on the web freely and that readers enjoy it and that we get this new generation of free, you know, data sucking websites uh, that emerge where, you know, the profits are not based on selling copies of works or authors, but on getting people to stay on the sites and read and trade books and then trading the reader's data. So my two cents here on the way I would start looking at this stuff is I think the solution to protecting creators from AI might involve policies and laws that approach the tech industry more broadly. For example, maybe we tax these applications. Uh, even better, let's pass new privacy and data collection protections for, for, the, for users on the web that would make these free content sites that make money off data collection less attractive. I mean, I don't know how any of these things would work. My point is, is that I don't think we can just approach this thorny digital era issue from the old analog era box of solutions. Uh, anyway, I don't have the answers, but I'm delighted to see that the questions are being raised and being raised now early on in the process. And I'm sure this is an issue that we're going to be talking much more about in the coming years, at least until we are replaced by bots. Well, for the time being, though, it's Andrew Albanese, the live and in-person Andrew Albanese from Publishers Weekly. Thanks so much for joining me on the program with your reporting and editorial analysis. My pleasure, as always. That's all for now. Our producer is Jeremy Brisky of Burst Marketing. You can subscribe to this program wherever you go for podcasts, and please do follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. You can also find Velocity of Content on YouTube as part of the CCC channel. I'm Christopher Keneally. Thanks for listening. Thank you.